Josie DeVidio is a woman on a mission to explore the human experience. With a passion to bring entertaining and informative content to your ears, real talk, real people, this is Josieology. Hey friends, welcome back to Josieology. I am your host, Josie DeVidio, and today I am chatting with Shelby Forsythia, the author of Permission to Grieve and a podcast host of Coming Back, Conversations on Life After Loss. Shelby, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Josie. So I have been reading Shelby's book, Permission to Grieve, and in it, she shares the heart-wrenching story about her mother's passing and all the feelings that come associated with that. And I was really impacted by how you told the story and how that grief of your mother's passing really led you to become a student of grief, where you were really seeking to devour anything you could find about grief. Tell me a little bit about that process and what do you think was the driving motivation for you to become a student of grief? Yeah, that's a great lead off question because I call myself a student of grief because for as much as I've learned, I never feel fully equipped to teach the experience of grief. I can tell others like the information that's come into my brain and how I see it through my lens, but I can never really tell anybody how to grieve. So I'll never call myself a teacher. I always call myself a student. And I'm also perpetually learning like what grief is, what it looks like, what it feels like, what it happens in relation to. But I started my journey to become a student of grief, mostly because the experience of grieving the death of my mom bothered me. There was something that was like wrong all the time. Like I just felt this general sense of unease or unrest or like being stalled out. I I wrote uh, when I first started writing about my experience, I said, I feel like I'm wading through mud in iron boots. Like I felt like something was just holding me backwards or pulling me down. And I, I couldn't figure out quite what it was. And I was like, is this what everybody who's ever grieved felt like? And so I went on this quest to find answers for the experience that I was going through. And uh, I started reading books again for the first time since graduating college and listening to podcasts, which is where I found so many stories of people coming back to life after loss again. And I started absorbing their stories. And while all of the griefs were different, so they lost a brother, a spouse, a mother, a friend, a child, they all had these notes of the possibility of returning to yourself again or like returning to your life exists. And that blew my mind because that sense of unease or unwellness was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to return to feeling like myself again. And that's what I think was really, really wrong. And so I went on a quest to see if that was even a possibility. And then upon finding that it was, I was like, okay, so how do I make that happen? How do I produce that in my own life and with my own grief? And I really appreciated learning that about your story. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show today, because my audience is predominantly middle-aged. Sorry, folks, but we are. (laughs) And, um, you know, we're all going to be having to deal with grief sooner rather than later. And the grief I'm talking about, of course, is when someone passes. But as you point out in your book, the feeling of grief gets attached to other life circumstances as well. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But I was interested in having you on the show because I wanted to have a real discussion about what people go through. And, you know, for you are willing to be vulnerable and share your story so much so that you wrote about it in Permission to Grieve. And I appreciated that because a lot of people 
as you point out in your book, have a certain expectation of what grief is going to be like and what they're expecting grieving people to go through. So it's important to have this conversation and look at it from different angles. Yeah, absolutely. There's like this perception of something that I've started to call the perfect griever of, you know, now a loss has happened and I have obtained this identity as a griever that I didn't really want. But now that I have it, society and our friends and our family and our teachers and our children have all these expectations of what we're supposed to be and do and look like and feel now that that's happened. And when that's not in alignment with what other people or even we are expecting of ourselves, like this weird, we feel really out of alignment when in fact, a lot of what we're feeling is just the human experience of grief. But that feeling of I'm not living up to the expectations of what I and others thought this grieving process would look like, that's what really, it messes with our heads. I agree. I think like we were saying, there's an expectation. And when you don't fit the mold, you know, I think that's what makes people nervous about grieving to begin with. They're not really sure how to do it. And then they don't want to have to live up to what they're supposed to do anyway. So in your book, you mentioned that there are two big societal teachings that sort of stop us from grieving in our natural way. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the first societal teaching is related to like the circumstances of our lives. I call it life rejection. And it starts really, really young. We're taught to reject the circumstances of our lives that make us feel the three ads, mad, sad, or bad. So if something makes you sad, say you didn't get a grade that you wanted in school or you weren't picked to be on the volleyball team or whatever the thing that's making you sad is, we're taught to compartmentalize that part of our lives and then focus on what's going well. So it's kind of like we'll brush this off to the side and then we'll focus on, you know, maybe you just started dating this new guy or maybe you just got a job or maybe you just bought a house or something like that. Anything to direct, redirect your energy somewhere else besides what hurts as opposed to acknowledging that it hurts and moving through that that way. But when grief happens, every single component of our lives is touched by it. And so all of a sudden, this thing that we're taught by society and friends and family to just you know, don't cry over spilt milk and just compartmentalize it and put it away or distract yourself or look at the bright side or find the silver lining, all of a sudden that doesn't work anymore because the entire circumstances of our lives are mad, sad, bad. Our relationships can be affected by loss. Our workplace and our ability to focus is affected. Our role in the household, how we feel about ourselves as people uh, is affected. And then, of course, our relationship to the person who dies is kind of disrupted by all of that, too. And so with life rejection, it's, it's impossible to push away the entirety of our lives when all of it is bad because of grief. And yet that's what we try to do, because that's what society has taught us to do when things feel like crap frankly, is to just push, 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 push it away. But then when grief happens, it's like, uh, there's no bright side. There's no silver lining. There's no, you know, there's nowhere else for our eyeballs to look that hasn't been touched by this massive blanket of grief. And so we're trying to push the entirety of our lives away and it just doesn't, it, it doesn't feel good. It's like we're pushing ourselves away. And that leads into uh, the second thing, which I call self-abandonment. And this is kind of similar to life rejection and that life rejection asks you to push away circumstances that feel mad, bad, or sad. But self-abandonment is pushing away pieces of ourselves that feel mad, bad, or sad. So pushing away emotions or feelings or things you want to express, but then don't because you're afraid of how they'll be perceived or what other people will think, or you're scared of them. Personally, I thought I was having a psychotic breakdown when my mom died. And so I pushed all of that very far away. 
and in polite society, we're taught if you're going to cry, go to your room. Or if you're going to be angry, go punch a pillow. Don't stay in the living room with the family. Or if you're mad at your boss, go have a drink or something like that. All these things to deflect all these really natural, normal human emotions we feel. And again, like life rejection, it's compartmentalize it, focus on something else. But with grief, all of your emotions are now affected by and informed by grief. And so we reject and abandon the entirety of ourselves. So with grief, we're taught to reject our lives and reject ourselves. And then it turns into, well, what am I left with in the aftermath of loss? If I've rejected all of my external circumstances, my job, my home, my kids, my relationships, my life, and then I'm also rejecting everything I feel and everything I want to express, then where are we? What's left? And one of the biggest phenomenons that happens with my clients and with readers of Permission to Grieve is this overwhelming sense of who am I now and where am I now? Like they feel like they've been dropped on this map in a country they've never seen before, even on a whole other planet. They're like, I just can't geolocate where I am in the midst of all of this. And it's such a universal feeling of grief and nobody's really talking about it. And at the root of this feeling is that teaching, societal teaching of being taught to reject our lives, and then to abandon the pieces of ourselves that aren't so pretty to look at. Yeah. And I think it's all, if I'm understanding the concepts correctly, it's all innocent initially, because I think the the society teaches us that our friends and family say these things to us, but it's because they want to prevent us from suffering. They want to take away that pain. They don't want to see us hurting. And so it's a subliminal messaging, you know, in some ways of like avoid bad things, but it comes out, you know, overtly in the like, well, you know, let's look at the bright side or, you know, they lived a long life or at least they didn't suffer or whatever. Those things all may be true, but it doesn't address the level of pain that the person who is grieving is feeling. And so that's what leads to this like like you're calling it life rejection, where you're saying this thing is bad, I'm going to reject that because I don't want to feel that. But usually we can exchange that, trade it for something that is okay to feel. But like you're saying, when you're the person who's grieving, there's nothing available to you to exchange that for. And so that is what's kind of unsettling or what you found as being lost. Like, okay, what do I do now? Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. I think you've got it spot on. And I love, I know listeners can't see us, but we're talking on video with each other. You look like you're reaching on a shelf and like pulling things down. And so it's almost like going to the the returns and exchanges section of a department store. And you're like, I don't want these shoes. I want to exchange them for another pair of shoes. And with grief, it's like all the shoes on the shelf are bad. They don't fit me. They're really hideously ugly. I can't stand walking in them. Whatever the case may be, there's like, there's no option to exchange for something that feels better because all of it is bad. And I love that you touched on this idea of society and friends and family. They just want us to feel better. Like it, it never, I won't say it never, it rarely happens with like malice or ill intention or ill will that people say things like they're in a better place, or at least you got the last five years with them, or at least they didn't suffer or things like that. Right. And there's something that the grief recovery method teaches that I didn't put in the book. And this is the framework that I was trained in. It's called intellectually true, emotionally not helpful. And what's really neat about that is that you can acknowledge that what the person is saying to you is true. Like, yeah, maybe they are in a better place. Or yeah, of course I did get the last five years with them, but it doesn't address the emotion of missing them or the longing that they're gone or the anger that you didn't get to say goodbye. And so intellectually, like it's a true fact. 
And a lot of uh, the the headbutting that comes around in the grief community is people who are trying to comfort getting offended because they're like, well, I didn't say the, the right thing. So maybe I just shouldn't say anything at all. I'm like, no, it's not the case. Like you're saying something that's true. But the issue is it's not speaking to what hurts. It's speaking to your brain when you really need to be speaking to the heart of the person who's grieving, identifying with their emotions as opposed to logic. Yeah. And that's a good point. I think a lot of times if you've never gone through the grieving process, or if you haven't gone through it recently, maybe even, I can't say that, you know, I, I have known several people who have passed, but no one that's been so close to me that I could ever claim to know what you went through, for example. But for someone like me to try to say the right thing in air quotes mm -hmm. to someone grieving, you don't know what to say and you don't want to offend. And sometimes it does become easier to withdraw or say nothing. Neither one of those situations is probably the right thing for the person who is grieving. But that's why we're having this conversation is to talk about what did you need at that time? What could we do to support a grieving person? And as the person who is grieving, what do we need to understand? One of which I think you pointed out brilliantly, which is that what this person is saying to me is intellectually true, even though it's not emotionally helpful. And so to try to maybe understand that as the person who is grieving. Shelby, when we come back, I want to get into why we need permission to grieve and what we can do to help those of us who are grieving or are touched by someone who is grieving. Hey friends, thank you so much for listening to Josiology. If you're enjoying this episode and you haven't already, I would love it if you would subscribe to the show. You know, subscribing is free, so you might as well do it. Subscribing lets your phone automatically download new episodes when they get released. And that way you are ready to go wherever you may find yourself with some free time. If you're not sure how to subscribe, head on over to the Josiology Podcast Facebook page. I have videos there that will show you exactly how to do it. Of course, you can always reach out to me on email, which is josie at josiology.com, and it would be my pleasure to help you get subscribed. Thanks again for listening. So Shelby, I really think that the name of your book is significant. Can you tell us why you named it that and why we need this permission to grieve? Yeah, those are two great questions. The reason I named it permission to grieve actually comes from the story that I share in the beginning of the book, because this is not a phrase that I created or invented. It kind of just, it came to me, it appeared to me, it laughed at me. Essentially what happened is about two years after the death of my mom, I was sitting in this tea shop in downtown Chicago and my wallet got stolen. I didn't recognize it had happened until about a half hour later. And then by the time I did, I had lost, I'm not sure what the exact dollar amount is, but I lost something like $2,000 or $2,500 in the course of a half an hour. And so I was mad. I was angry. And I also felt similar emotions to what I felt when my mom died, although not at the same catastrophic level as her death. But there's this, this notion of you know being ripped off, being angry, feeling unsafe in the world, not being able to trust anybody, just being so bothered and agitated by the fact that that happened. And so with the one card I had left, I had my bus pass left, I went home and I shut my apartment door and I literally just dropped to my knees and I started weeping and, and yelling and just like banging the hardwood floor with my fist. And it, it felt like I was mad about the wallet, but then grief is funny because grief is cumulative. So if you don't let it out at one point, it comes along with it piggybacks on something else. 
And so I felt myself like releasing the grief of my mom as well as this was happening. And I was cursing out God and the universe and and people who steal things and just my own stupidity for leaving my bag on the back of my chair. Like everything was bad. And after about a half hour or so, I like wore myself out because you can't, I can't maintain that level of energy for very long. And so I laid on the floor and I was kind of done. It's like when the toddler gets done throwing a tantrum and they're just laying there breathing. And I got up and I went to my kitchen and I made a cup of tea and I was just staring at this spot on the floor where I had literally just had like an adult temper tantrum. I had a meltdown and I was like, what the heck was that? And this little voice, I have no idea where this came from. This little voice laughed at me and said, you just gave yourself permission to grieve. And I was like, whoa, it totally blew my mind. And it gives me chills even now to talk about it. Because like immediately after that, I fell asleep. I woke up the next morning, the entire rest of the week. I was like, what's permission to grieve? What is that? That's such a novel idea and a novel concept. And like, what does that even mean? And this was far before I started my own podcast and and did online work with gravers and things like that. So this was way before I developed really anything. But then when I did start my podcast coming back and I did start working with people, this word permission just kept coming up over and over and over again, whether it was from grievers who were farther ahead on the road and they were like, I finally gave myself permission to, to tell my kids what really happened, or I gave myself permission to write a song about it, or I gave myself permission to make a t-shirt and wear it in public, or kind of whatever the permission slip was. And they didn't realize they were saying it, but every time I heard the word permission, my ears would perk up and I was like, oh, what is that? And I would have clients tell me, I wish somebody would just give me permission to cry at work, or I wish somebody would just give me permission to feel like I'm not that competent anymore, or I'm not a good driver, or have it be okay that I can't remember where my keys are. Just like all these things that affect our identities and grief. And oh my gosh, permission just kept bothering me. Like it poked me. It just would not go along, uh, go away. And I felt it was kind of like a, a princess in the pea thing where I'm like sleeping on these mattresses, but I'm like, I feel something here and it's not going away. And so I started documenting all of these instances of permission and continuing to listen. And that's how the book got created was kind of an, a hybrid of that me breaking down on the floor situation, plus my own lost story, then all of these other revelations about permission and desires for permission that other people brought to the table as they were grieving, which was really, really fantastic to be a part of. And I think we need permission to grieve because unlike so many other experiences in the world, we don't inherently have it. We're not told we have permission to grieve. We're told to stop grief as it's happening, whether it's if you're going to cry, go cry in another room, or you need to be strong for your family, or you're not allowed to be upset that your dad died after the one year mark or things like that. These weird, invisible and visible stigmas and teachings that society puts on top of gravers of, you know, you should be over it and you should conquer it and you should have moved on by now. And I'm like, nobody's telling us the opposite, that we have permission to have this, that it's okay to express it, that it means a lot when we say it out loud and can validate it. Like nobody's saying that. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to be the person to say that. And it's not because, you know, I'm so great, but I'm like, nobody else is walking up to the microphone and saying this. And so I'm going to make that my mantle that I take up and carry for a while. And so I've noticed that much of the work that I do, and even much of the work that other grief professionals do without even saying it, is give permission. They create these spaces where they just allow grief to show up and exist. And unfortunately, that's just so rare in the world. And so I'm hoping with permission to grieve that it will become more of a 
movement. Yeah. Like, or a practice even that shows up every single day in really teeny tiny ways. Like your, your daughter comes home from school and she's visibly had a bad day. And instead of offering her a snack or a cookie to kind of quiet her and make, make it go away, ask her what happened. Ask her what emotion she's feeling about it. Ask her if she even wants to talk about it right now, if you want to revisit it later, but just creating that space for that to show up. And then when the big stuff does happen, like a family member dies or a dear friend dies or something like that, you can allow those larger grief emotions to come up to the surface and be able to to make that room for other people's grief, which is a skill that not a lot of us have. And it is a skill. It can be learned. It's not um, it's not an innate talent for for many of us. Right. Yeah. Because in our culture, we don't really deal with death. We don't really talk about it. Um, we don't know how to prepare for it. We don't know how to grieve, as we're discussing. You know, in other cultures, it's that's not the case. They are, I think, much more mentally prepared for that stage of life than we are in our culture. Yeah. And I think our culture has a lot of things to say, too, about resisting dying or aging or even nearing that threshold as a possibility. And so much of the conversation surrounding death is still unknown. Most people have never been to a funeral until it's for somebody they've really, really loved. And a lot of people, even people with kids or dependents, or even who are caregivers for others, they don't have things like a living will and revocable trust or power of attorney or DNRs or things like that set in place just in case it happens. It's like we're all walking around in the world and we know we're going to die, but we just choose not to. It's like the world's biggest secret. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think we're avoiding it at all costs. And I think you make an astute connection because yes, our world, our culture predominantly is built around wellness and anti-aging and longevity and hustle and work hard, which is all good, but not if you're ignoring that other part of life. Because, you know, like you spoke about in your book, grief is not limited to death. It could be any loss that we feel. And we're not really taught, you know, I don't know who's supposed to be teaching us, but let's just say it's not a discussion that we have in our culture. Maybe it's becoming more so, but so far, it's not been prevalent to deal with loss, right? To deal with the breakup of a relationship or the loss of a job or, you know, having to move out of state for some other reason and you're you're leaving behind family members or friends that you love. So all those things, obviously, they may not be as intense as losing a loved one, but they are losses that we're not really trained to deal with. In fact, we kind of just ignore it. And, and, you know, like you said, we focus on something else, you know, it's kind of like, don't look behind the curtain. Don't look at this bad thing that's, that's happening. You don't need to, you don't need to learn how to deal with it because we're just going to ignore it altogether. Can you talk about grief as it relates to non-death situations? Yeah. Yeah. And I want to go back to something that you said, because a lot of people like to rank the severity of losses. And what I can say on that is that grief is felt at 100% for the person who's experiencing it. So while you could say that a job loss isn't as bad as your husband dying, it depends on the relationship with your job versus the relationship with your husband. Because I know and have witnessed a lot of people, and I'm sure a lot of people listening have too, where some people's biggest losses have not been, you know, my mother died. It may have been a financial crisis or the loss of a child or even the loss of a pet that was with them through a really, really hard time or for a very long time. And so like, there's no hierarchy or ranking of losses. That being said, I can really concretely define grief as the collection of emotions that happens when something that was your normal 
in life has changed permanently or ended. And so an ending would be considered like a death, of course, but it could also be considered, you know, you get fired or outsourced at your job, or you have to move across the country or you're fleeing a country. And so you can really never go back home. Things like pet loss, a pet dies, things like financial crises that do happen, like bankruptcy is an enormous trigger for grief. Other things of that nature, and a lot of people say, is is something like divorce or something a break, like a breakup, a grief. And I'm like, yeah, because you will never be in a relationship with that person again the way that you were. Even if you do decide to revisit it in the future, it will, by all human definitions, be absolutely different than when you entered into it for the first time. And so, grief is the loss of something that you had a relationship with, either very intensely or for a very long time, or a combination of the two. And only the person who's experiencing the grief can really rank the severity of their losses. But the suddenness of it, the surprise of it, plus all the hopes, dreams, expectations, the things that were coming down the road, all of those died. And so those griefs are similar to somebody we love dying. But what's fascinating is that like society doesn't acknowledge that those kinds of losses can impact us as much as or even more than when somebody who is in our immediate family dies. And that points back to a larger societal thing of like blood is thicker than water and like traditional family values and and feeling like the people that we're related to should always be our top priority. When in reality, I'm a lot closer to some of my friends than I ever will be to any of my family members. And so losing them, whether it's through a major move or they actually die, will be harder for me than when some of my distant and not so distant relatives die. And so it's all really, really individualized for the person. But what we need to do as people and as a society is respect the fact that people have lost without trying to get a magnifying glass and scrutinize the circumstances under which they lost and try and rank it or classify it. And that goes back to that intellectually true, emotionally not helpful thing. Like, sure, all the things you're saying are true. You know, my cat died. It's not like I lost my grandmother, but maybe my grandmother's not very nice. So, you know, (laughs) it's all variable. It's all variable for each person. And so what we really need to be looking at is the fact that somebody has lost something and they feel awful about it instead of looking at, you know, the nuts and bolts of why and how it happened and who that person is in their life. Now, part of your podcast is talking about life after loss. So let's get into that a little bit. What should people expect to be a part of their life after they experience a loss? That's a great question because going back to our very first kind of minutes of conversation, there is this feeling of, I don't really know who and where I am. And that's an innate part of life after loss. There's no jumping over that hurdle. There's no way to kind of circumvent that reality. Part of the process of grieving is being in a space, a really, really uncomfortable space of, I don't really know who I am and I don't know what's coming next. There's a visual that I use in Permission to Grieve of the uprooted tree, where like when park services or, or things like that, they need to uproot very old trees, whether they're making a new road or, or laying down pipes or something like that. They bring these cranes in and will wrap a chain around this huge old tree and uproot it from the ground. But it usually they usually can't transport it to the second site that same day. And so this tree is just suspended with all of its roots dangling and dirt falling, whatever. And they're not going to put it back into the hole that it was dug out of. The new hole has not been dug yet. And so there's kind of this suspended, the tree is in this very abnormal place 
place. It's like, I don't know where to draw water from. All the birds have left. My entire environment and ecosystem has just been disrupted because I have not yet been planted in my new reality. And I think that's a major way that a lot of grieving people feel. And then there's something that I invented on the podcast that a lot of listeners have resonated with. It's called the involuntary scavenger hunt. So in this lost place of feeling like you really don't know who you are and where you are, something happens where you start trying to grasp on to the things that work for you. And some of them do and some of them don't. And it's involuntary because none of us really wanted to go on this journey. Nobody sets out to really discover, you know, who am I now and where am I in the world without having something really catastrophic or really meaningful happen beforehand. And there's this really uncomfortable searching process of trying things on and seeing if they work. And this can relate to everything from I started practicing yoga to I changed jobs to I started reading books again to I started going to therapy to, you know, I decided to buy all new furniture for my dining room and see if this helps me navigate like what the, I hate to say the new normal, but like the new reality is in the aftermath of loss. Um, There's another phenomenal book I love, and the author, Christina Rasmussen, was on my show. She calls it Second Firsts. She's like, in your life after loss, you will be doing everything again for the first time. And so it's like you're living a life of second firsts because Mm. there's always, you're doing the first thing again after your person has died or after the loss has happened. And it's just a phenomenal piece on being in that space that she calls the waiting room of not really knowing, you know, who I am, where I am and emerging into this place of, okay, now I'm going to do everything again, but for the first time. And a lot of grief professionals and even therapists don't talk about this, but there's so much to be said for the role of forgiveness and self-forgiveness in loss because we're not really good at doing things again for the first time. We think we should be because we could do them before our loss, but our pre-loss selves are not our post-loss selves. And so we're not we're not often as capable or as focused or as interested or as able to do things like we used to be. And so being able to forgive ourselves as that process is happening and have a lot of radical empathy and compassion, which is a lot of what I teach through permission, is really, really important. Now, on your website, um, which is named after you, shelbyforsythia.com, you do offer grief counseling. So what does that look like? Is that done live? Is it done remotely? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, First, I'll give a little disclaimer and say that I'm not a trained counselor. So I call what I do grief guidance. I'm certified in a lot of modalities, one of them being uh, the grief recovery method. And then of course, I have the best certification of all, which is holy crap, I have grieved. (laughs) Mm -hmm. A lot of people ask me, they're like, do I need to go to school for this? I'm like, if you feel called, absolutely. But you don't really need a certification in grief to be able to talk about it and tell others about it. And so what I offer is two different routes that you can pursue. Um, The first one is probably the most popular. It's actually group guidance. And this happens over on my Patreon page. And so literally, I kind of do something like you and I are doing right now where I do a video chat and have my microphone on. And for a full hour, people can hop on and ask their questions or get book recommendations or the holidays are coming up or I'm not speaking to my brother or can you help me kind of wrestle with whatever grief is presenting me with at the moment. And that happens once a month, which is pretty cool. And then supporting on Patreon as well with the group grief guidance, I also release a grief journaling prompt every Monday morning. and so. We explore themes like decisions or empathy or friendship or things that are changed by loss and kind of how they're affected. So I share my own grief story. And then my the listeners of my podcast, the members of the private grief group will share their own as it relates to their own losses. 
And I have a couple who they're like, I'm not going to read your story until I submit mine and then they'll go back and read it. And then some people actually get good jumping off points from what I write about losing my mom. So that's a fun place to find if you're looking for community in the aftermath of loss or kind of more of a roundtable discussion about what grief is like or feeling the support of others. That's a really good place to start. And then if you really want to dive in and do a lot of intense work with me, or if you're really coming out of a major loss or anticipating one, especially like I know my dad's going to die, I'm just not sure when, I offer something called one-on-one grief guidance. And this happens over the phone. I've had clients from all over the world, including uh, Australia and Boston and California. And so we, we set a time to meet usually about once a week. And I can do plans from six weeks all the way up to 12 weeks. I usually say give it about 12 weeks. I don't really work with people for longer than 90 days just so we can have a breather in between. Mm -hmm. And I use a visual called the dining room table when I start off with people and I say, pretend I've invited you into my home and there's this huge dining room table in the middle of the room. It seats like 10 or 12 people. And what would happen if we dumped the entire contents of your brain out onto that table? We can sort through it. We can untangle some stuff. We can put things in piles together. But so much of figuring out who I am now, where I am now, and the aftermath of loss is kind of finding a place for it all to go and belong. Because when grief happens, we don't have a file folder in our brain for that. It's never happened before. So why would we have made room for it previously? And a lot of the work that I do is figuring out where grief goes. And a lot of that is about how to figure out where home is again, after people feel like safety and security has been taken away in the aftermath of loss, kind of destroying the myth of the perfect griever, which is that thing that society and our friends and family pressure us to be. And then a lot, especially lately that clients have been requesting me is how, how do I take this into my workplace? How do I tell my kids? How do I talk about this with my spouse in ways that invite conversation as opposed to A, shutting it down or B, feeling so morbid that no one wants to talk to you. And so it's very, very customized for each client that walks through the door. Some people are like, I'm starting a foundation to to help with suicide loss. Other people are like, I just moved out of the country and I'm not really sure where home is because I'm logistically moved away from it. But even energetically or emotionally, I feel like I've been uprooted from my life. And so it's really, really interesting what comes up in sessions. I don't do anything revolutionary. I'm not, you know, patting people on the head and boom, you're healed. I'm, I'm helping people figure out how to navigate life after loss at a time when they're really feeling like, I'm not sure which direction to go, where to place my feet, kind of where to start and who I am in the midst of that finding direction process. So let's speak to the listeners right now who, I mean, obviously loss can occur at any time and at any stage of life. But for those of us who are entering this middle age zone, we tend to have a higher, higher risk, I guess, of that happening to us. I know that's not the right term, but I I can't, I can't think of it right now. We are much more likely to have to start dealing with friends who are ill, uh, losing parents. Really, we don't even know at any given time what we're in for and when we're going to be called to grieve. So what can we leave our listeners with to help them either prepare or to learn how to develop a mindset or things that they can kind of stick in their pocket to remember if either they find themselves grieving or needing to support and help someone who is grieving? Yeah. I think the first thing that I'll share is a tool that I call the bowl. And I actually used to offer a meditation on this. And it's meant to be used for when somebody is sharing their grief story with you, or you've heard that a loss has just happened and you're hearing it from another person. So it's kind of, 
it's a tool for what to do when you feel like the circumstances of our loss are overwhelming to you and they're coming from another person. Um, So somebody comes up to you and starts telling you they've just been diagnosed with cancer and you're like, this is a really big thing and I'm feeling overwhelmed. Something that I I ask my podcast listeners and clients to do is imagine there's this really big bowl floating in between the two of you. And whether you're over the phone, whether the person's on TV and you're watching the news, kind of you can put it in between you and whatever's coming at you and let their entire grief story, their entire loss story just go into the bowl. And so it's not racing forward and just barreling on top of you and your body because that's a lot to carry. Grief is very, very heavy. But put it in that bowl in front of you. You're like, okay, so this is coming towards me, but it's not on top of me. So I can kind of look at it in a way that's a bit more relaxed. And in that, I always remind people who are experiencing loss themselves or kind of a bystander to someone who's grieving is to validate the emotions first. And this goes back to that intellectually true, emotionally not helpful. Don't make your objective to try and make them feel better. Relinquish the fact that that's not your job and they may not feel better in this moment. So your, your job is not to change their emotional state. It's to acknowledge exactly where they are right now. And sometimes that looks really crappy and really mascara running all over your face and just like really sad and allow that to show up and be the human experience that it is, as opposed to you know, Bob the Builder, I can fix this and and come in with your with your platitudes or at least or, you know, they're in a better place or religious ideology or whatever. Instead of rushing in with all of that, which is very much a brain thing, just take, I like to use this image of take the elevator down one floor, go from the brain to the heart, take it down a floor and speak from that place of, I see that you're hurting. And you can even kind of, I wouldn't say necessarily parrot back everything that they're saying, but what, what are you observing in that moment? I see this is ripping you to shreds. I see that you're exhausted. I see and understand, and it's okay that you don't really know how to talk to your kids yet. Like that is so much more comforting than at least you got to say goodbye, which is what so many people are going to toss at them anyway. So be the person who validates what they're feeling and just stands next to them in that with your bowl and with your validating emotions, as opposed to the person who, you know, hugs them, tells them everything's going to be okay one day, which it might be, that's intellectually true. But in that moment, what you want to be is emotionally helpful, not emotional alchemy. You're not looking to change where they are right now, which is what a lot of people think is true in grief. You're looking to acknowledge them exactly where they're at. Awesome. That's a great tip. Shelby, thank you so much for coming on to Josiology today and sharing your grief story with us and what you've learned through the process. Thank you for writing Permission to Grieve so that others can learn from your process. You know, with your book and your podcast and your grief guidance, you have lit the path for the others who will inevitably walk down the path of grief behind you. So thank you so much for your contribution. Thanks so much for having me today. Friends, if you'd like to learn more about what Shelby is offering, you can visit her website at shelbyforsythia.com. You can also follow her on both Instagram and Facebook at Shelby Forsythia. Her podcast is called Coming Back Conversations on Life After Loss. And of course, if you're driving or working out right now while listening to this, you can just check the episode notes. I will have all of the links to all of her platforms there. Her book can be found on both her website, shelbyforsythia.com, as well as Amazon. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for listening to Josiology. Be sure to visit josiology.com to access the show notes and discover fantastic bonus content. To join the conversation, find us on Facebook or Instagram 
with username at Josiology Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.